Our scripture reading today is from Acts 4, verse 32, to chapter 5, verse 11. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it to the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to human beings, but have lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What does a Jesus-following, spirit-filled church look like? That's essentially what we're trying to explore in this series. I think it essentially looks like Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. Um, it's been some weeks now. That's the, the last passage that I preached here. And I think that's Luke's template for, like, this is what it looks like. Remember, the Spirit came upon the church, and then they begin to start these rhythms the key word, if you remember in that passage, is the Greek word koinonia. It's the word uh, that's translated fellowship, but I argued it's a very poor translation. The way I define it is sharing life together. That's what it looks like when the spirit inflames a community and brings it to life and people follow Jesus sacrificially and generously. What does that look like in a modern context? I really do uh, think that it looks like the place we just came from. Uh, open Arms Village in Eldoret, Kenya. It's 52 acres, and it's located, I'm sure you probably don't know, know uh, Kenyan geography, but in the northwest 
uh, section of the country at about 7,000 feet elevation. David and Rachel Gallagher, about 15 years ago, started the village. God put it on their heart. They were from New Hope uh, to, be, to start a community uh, to rescue the most vulnerable children in Kenya and to give them a place that they can grow holistically, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. And by God's grace, they've accomplished that. There are 1.5 million kids uh, that are homeless in Kenya. Uh, there's 150 kids that live at the village in seven homes that have kind of moms and dads and operate as a family. We got to spend uh, an evening with them and watch the kids do their chores and have dinner together and have devotions and share what they were grateful for and pray for one another. Uh, it's also, uh, there's also a state-of-the-art medical clinic. There's a school that offers an additional schooling to another 150 kids from the surrounding community, and then they're, they're attempting to be self-sustaining. So uh, they, break, they, they bake bread, there's like cows walking around everywhere, and sheep, and they pump water from the, the river and treat it. Uh, it's, it's really a remarkable place. If you remember the, the phrase I've shared with you a little bit, uh, thin place, it's a Celtic term, a little bit of heaven breaking into a little bit of earth. We all have those spots, and I think Open Arms Village is one of those spots. Um, they're always praying, they're always in God's word, and true miracles happen there um, really on a daily basis. So I think that I, more than any other place I've been, uh, that's what it looks like, a Jesus-following, spirit-filled community that's experiencing shared life together. And New Hope has an imprint there. Some of you are, are new to New Hope, and those of you from Mount Scott uh, that, that were adopted into, into our church may not know Open Arms very well, but there is, of the seven group homes there, there's one called the New Hope House that New Hope uh, supported. If you remember a couple years ago, Advent Conspiracy Project, we uh, gave to put uh, um, uh, solar panels on all the houses so the kids can have hot showers. That was really cool to walk around and see that and even experience a hot shower myself. And then uh, we partnered with a group called Kids Around the World. I think two, three years ago, Advent Conspiracy Project, um, we, we gave the village a playground out of your generosity. So that's been sitting in storage because of this weird thing called COVID that, that kept us from going. And that's essentially the main project that our team did. So I think there's some pictures there. Look at that. Look at those kids. Huh? I got like teary watching, you know, where uh, you spend all week building this playground and you just see such palpable joy uh, in these kids. And then we had a couple medical professionals from our team give health checks to all the kids in the village and all the adults and then we also had extra time because our team worked really, really hard and we started some irrigation projects uh, for the homes. So uh, I think that's what it looks like. What does that look like here for us at New Hope? What does it look like to be a Jesus-following, spirit-filled church that's sharing life together? That's what this series is all about. It's called On Mission, A Study of Acts. I noticed walking in um, that we still have a number of the, the commentaries. We, I think we blew through them twice. The big read, and if you're new to New Hope, we kind of have these big reads, and a book we want you to read Let's sell those things out. I mean, we're gonna be in Acts for a while, uh, so if you're like, ah, I missed the beginning, it's not worth it, we're gonna have our Advent series, and then I'm just prepping you, we're coming back to Acts, because it's a long, long book, and we don't, wanna, uh, we don't wanna cut it short. I think the Spirit of God has a lot to teach us in this book. So that book's by my professor, Scott McKnight, it's so excellent, and so whether you, you do it for family devotions, or if you're, if you're living with friends, or you just use it individually, what you get here on Sunday is not enough. You're apprentices of Jesus, so throughout the week, you need to go deeper. That's what I'm saying as your pastor. Uh, that's a tool. 
and the, the scriptures are right in there, so you can just take the book with you and really immerse yourself in the book of Acts. I want to challenge you to do that. So it's on, uh, you're not going to find it cheaper anywhere. Let's get rid of those books. I don't, I don't like seeing them out there. So we, I want them in your head, hands and your hearts. All right, so let's dive in. Um, Acts 4, 32 through uh, 37. That's kind of the first chunk of this passage that Portia read. Let's, let's start there. And if you have your Bibles in front of you, keep them out. Uh, this is a, a, the, the opening verse. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they have. That word shared in the Greek is koinos. That is the root word of koinonia, that key word back in Acts 2. That's Luke's attempt to link the passages together, saying the same type things happening. Chapter 2 was not a one-off. This is how the church was operating. They were, uh, they were sharing time. They were sharing prayer. They were sharing gifts. They were sharing tables. They did not hold anything back. And so Luke tells us there was not a needy person in the entire community. Can you imagine that? Can we say that about our New Hope community? I'm not sure. Then Luke gives us a specific example of what this looks like through this um, man, Barnabas. Now, the, the church had uh, tons of diversity. We know that studying the composition of the early church. We know they had socioeconomic diversity as well. There's tons of nerdy studies done by scholars on this of, of uh, how many rich people were there in the first century in the Greco-Roman world, and then how did that translate to church? You don't want to read them. They're just really exhaustingly boring, to be honest. And scholars disagree, but I think they can find consensus that in the, in the Roman Greco world, there was a top maybe like 4% that were the elite. They were the rich of the rich. And then there's maybe 10% that we would call upper class or upper, upper middle class, that they can maybe own homes and they own businesses. Everyone else was poor. They were then a different level of destitute all the way down to, to, to slaves. So the church probably approximated that. Most scholars think that maybe the church had some of that 4%, maybe not. There's, there's debate on that. Uh, but they definitely had some of that middle class, folks that own homes or a home or two, and they had businesses. And then the church was heavily populated by, by the poor and the destitute and slaves. So Luke says there was a pattern that began out of this koinonia, out of this movement of the Holy Spirit, that some of these folks that had homes or multiple homes or land was really important. It was passed on uh, through family lines. Some of these folks provoked by the Spirit would sell a piece of their land or a piece of their property and vow to give it all to the church, to the apostles laying at the apostles' feet, to be used broadly throughout the church so that no one would be in need. That was the rhythm Luke's just telling us. That was going on. And then he highlights this man, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus. We will know him as Barnabas. So if you've ever read the book of Acts before, it's okay if you haven't. Uh, Barnabas will be a crucial character. He's mentioned 23 times in the book. So we'll get to know him. This is our first introduction to him. So we'll, from here on out, he'll be called Barnabas. He was a Jewish man from Cyprus, he was a Levite. Levites were uh, like temple assistants. Uh, some of them were priests. Not all of them were priests. Uh, they helped out with copying the Torah. They uh, guarded the gates. They cleaned up. Uh, so they were just kind of helpers around uh, the, the temple place. So he was also called son of encouragement. So we, we know, and we'll see this in Acts, he was an encouraging fellow. He's the kind of person that you wanted around you all the time. He was always lifting the spirits. He was the sunshine in the room. But he was also remarkably generous. And we're going to focus on that attribute of the early church this morning, their generosity. 
So Luke uses Barnabas, the son of encouragement, as kind of his poster child for generosity, as an example of what was going on. Uh, so he lays that out. He tells us Barnabas sold the piece, laid at the apostles' feet, that that rhythm was going on. And then the chapter ends. I think you know chapters were added later. And some chapter, most chapter divisions are fine. This one's horrible. So you can just scratch it out in your Bible. It just doesn't, it doesn't work. I don't know who, you know, they, they must have been lacking sleep when they made this one. Chapter five is a continuation. So the passage goes from 4.32 to 5.11. Luke clearly intends this to be one section. So Portia read it all together. Because what Luke's doing is he's holding up Barnabas as a poster child for generosity and then Ananias and Sapphira as the opposite of that. Like, this is, a, this is what you want to be as following Jesus led by the Spirit. This is what you don't want to be. And, Ananias, and he's holding them together as one passage. So we go into, if you're following along in your, in your scriptures, into now Acts 5, 1 through 11. And we, we meet these characters, Ananias and Sapphira. They were husband and wife. And they did the same thing as Barnabas. They had this piece of property. They vowed to the Lord that they would sell it and they would lay it at the apostles' feet and they would give it all to the Lord for the betterment of the community so no one would be at need. The problem is they, this is Luke's term, they kept back some for themselves and they lied about it. So they're not only lying to the apostles, their leaders, and not only lying to their community, this koinonia sharing life together community, they're being deceptive, they're putting themselves out there as being like robustly generous and they're not. They're kind of partially generous. They're not doing much more than regular folks. And then uh, Peter sees right through it. And Peter says that they've been co-opted by Satan. That's strong terms. That Satan, the evil one, has gotten in their hearts and corrupted them and caused them to lie, not only to their community, not only to the apostles, but to God uh, and God alone. And so Peter kind of sees right through it, questions Ananias, gives him an opportunity to repent. This is key. Ananias has an opportunity to repent of his sin. Everything would have gone well, but he doubles down, right? Politics, sports, whatever it is, it's always the cover-up that gets you, isn't it? It's never the initial thing. It's like, just say you're sorry. And he has that opportunity, but he does it. He doubles down, and boom, he drops over dead. Whoa. And then the body bag team comes in the Jewish body bag team, and they haul him away. They wrap him up. It was a Jewish custom. So they wrap him up, they pull him out, and then we're presuming the way, the way uh, Luke writes a story, we're presuming that his wife, Sapphira, d- didn't know anything about this, that she's in the dark. So it's kind of like a, a setup. But she gets the same opportunity. It's a, it's a parallel text, same question. Peter sees through her. She has an opportunity to repent in front of the community, and everything would have been all right. She doesn't. She doubles down. Boom the body bag team comes in again. They're busy that day. Just off, off they go. If you're reading this and uh, you're a first century reader and you know your Hebrew scriptures, which most of the people involved in these communities knew them like the back of their hand, you would think, I think, of Joshua 7 and, and Achan, the story of Achan. And you don't, I don't pretend that you should know this, but you may know this story. Uh, Israel had a big victory and they got all these spoils from the victory. And then uh, some of the spoils were set aside and devoted to the Lord. God said, set those things aside, they're mine, essentially. And this fella, Achan, he's there, and I'm sure he bled, and he worked really hard. He thought he deserved it and was entitled to, you know, a ring or a sword or whatever. I don't know what he took. He took some of the stuff that was the Lord's, and he kind of buried it in his tent. Maybe you remember this story. And then uh, as they continued to be in battle, suddenly things shifted, and they were getting whooped in battle. 
And Joshua was like, something's off. Something's wrong. You know, who's sinning? And so they went through this whole thing, and they finally found out that, that Achan was, and then the people put him to death. Uh, that would have been inappropriate in this scene for Peter to just go and, and slay Ananias with fire. In this instance, the Lord uh, put them to death. They would have thought of that story of lying to the Lord, of holding back some of God's stuff for themselves. This idea of, of unrepentant sin being met with tragic consequences, we will see it again in the book of Acts, just to prep you a little bit. Well, we already passed it. We didn't cover this passage, but Judas Iscariot, the one who was the traitor, right? Acts opens with his gruesome death by his own hand, unrepentant sin. You have Herod Agrippa I in, uh, in chapter 12. He's struck down and eaten by worms, so prep yourself for that story. Jewish magician and false prophet Bar-Jesus is struck down in chapter 13 later. So we see this idea of unrepentant sin and, and what feels to us like tragic consequences. So right now, even hearing Portia read the story, I told people what I was preaching on today, and they're like, oh, good luck with that passage. You know, Ooh, you should have skipped that one. I thought about it. Uh, but so when we hear it, Luke, Luke clearly puts this in, right? He has tons of stories that he could choose from. Acts could be way longer. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, Luke puts this story in there for us. And you're probably, with our modern consciences, you're bothered by it. And that's good. That's okay. I think that's some of the intent. But let me, let me just say a few things. I think sometimes we bring our Western sensibilities to this. We're so far removed. So let me just say a few things, not, as, not to set it aside or to make you necessarily less uncomfortable, but kind of to give you some context. Uh, one, uh, it, you are not God. I'm not God. We're not God. This is such a basic thing, right? We're not God. So we should be really, really careful when we're telling God, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That seems a little extreme, God. Uh, we're not God. We always have to start with that one. As Job said, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a hard prayer, especially if you're going through stuff. But God gives life so God can take it away. Secondly, uh, this, this seemingly harsh punishment and the other things we see in Acts, there's response to unrepentance sin, it is pretty exceptional. And my own personal belief is that we're in an exceptional moment where the spirit of God is forming the church and creating the template for what the church is and tons is at stake. Tons is at stake. So, so we're, we're, the, the spirit of God is creating this counter-Jesus community of great reversals. The, 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 the world was not generous then. They're like, you're to be radically generous. You're not to lie to God. You're to be people of integrity and truth. And so my own belief is in this exceptional period, there was some harshness there. That what feels harsh to us, and maybe even felt harsh to people later on. Um, we we, we got we to understand this hard lesson was needed to create the template and the model of the church that could carry through and, and be faithful. Um, so third, this scene, scene would not have seemed harsh at all to the original first century crowd. We have stuff. We have first century documents we see everywhere. How important vow keeping was to them. Uh, breaking a vow, especially a vow to a God, was seen as a very serious deal. And you can reference Numbers 30, Deuteronomy 23 to see this in the Hebrew scriptures, but also in first century Greco-Roman world. First century writers and thinkers felt that it would be better to die than to break a vow. So they would have seen the story and been like, yep, yep, that happens, and they wouldn't have been bothered. So just, again, just to, to have that in, in our mind. Uh, fourth, uh, God is just. 
God's also merciful. Those are things don't go against each other. They don't conflict. God is both. God is just. God must deal with sin, my sin and your sin. You don't want a world and you don't want a God that isn't just. just, You just don't. Uh, We can play that out a million. That's a whole sermon series probably. But God is just. God's also merciful because in God's justice, as God, he could do this every time someone commits unrepentant sin. And it's a rarity that he doesn't. So God is merciful in that way. And finally, uh, judgment is not antithetical to love either. I presume Ananias and Sapphira placed their hope in Jesus as their savior and were baptized and were part of this community. And they had tragic consequences for their unrepentant sin and then doubling down on it and lying to God. But I also believe they were ushered into the presence of their Lord and Savior and they were loved forever. So just a couple things to keep in mind. Um, But with that said, you should be bothered and I should be bothered. This uh, this passage, I'm glad we stayed with it because I I think it's meant to get inside of us and rile us up. So this is the section of the sermon in my notes that I say, so what? And this is my own discipline. I don't want to just come up here and like, hey, look at these cool things in the Bible and these Greek words and let's feel good about ourselves. So what? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for you? What does this mean for, for, for new hope? Um, one, we should uh, fear the Lord. We should fear the Lord. Uh, the basic Bible study tool, when something is repeated, we're supposed to notice it. So if you go back to the text, twice in this relatively short passage, we're told, Luke tells us, that great fear sees the church. That's a really cool Greek word. It's two words that we still use, phobia and mega. It's megaphobia. He's like, <laughs> megaphobia sees the church when they saw this. And so I think that this is a good thing. This is a positive thing. Now, we can easily misconstrue this term, uh, fear of the Lord. Some of you are here, and you've been part of church communities or spiritual communities that people have used that to be manipulative and to be abusive, and I'm deeply grieved at that. I'm sorry for that journey. Uh, You are loved. You are God's beloved. So just know that that is the core essence. Uh, But we can take God's great love for us and also carry it to a distorted picture of God where God becomes this kind of benevolent Santa Claus that kind of is getting senile, and that's God. He's, oh, it's all right. Let me just keep on giving, and... That's not the full picture of God. God is holy. We know that? You're not God. I'm not God. God's holy. We can't even begin to fathom what that's like. Isaiah, when he saw the throne room of God, went to his his face and says, woe is me, a sinful man. Peter, when he realized who Jesus was in the boat, went to his knees. It's like, I'm not worthy. So that is an aspect of God. Yes, we're deeply loved, but we can't go to that extreme where God doesn't care about sin. We don't want that kind of God. We don't. 300 times the word fear is connected with God in Scripture. Here's a couple examples. Job was called a man who feared God. The midwives in Exodus rescued Moses, even though they were told to kill all the Hebrew children because they feared God. Uh, In Exodus, also, we learn the fear of the Lord keeps us from sinning. Moses chose leaders who feared the Lord and would not take bribes. In Leviticus, we're told the fear of the Lord should cause us to care for the elderly and the vulnerable. 
Jesus tells us we should fear only God who holds the keys to life and death. Paul told the church at Corinth that we should be working towards personal holiness because we fear the Lord. And then probably most notably from the wisdom literature, Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Is the beginning. What does this mean? What does this phrase mean? The best definition I ever heard was from a Hebrew scholar named John Walton. It's a very simple definition. He said, fear of the Lord means taking God seriously. Taking God seriously. When this happened to Ananias and Sapphira, Luke tells us, they begin to take God seriously. Now, they weren't scared like boogeyman, like, woo. That's not, not what it means. They, they took him seriously. Like, this is the real deal. We're called to be an alternative community. God's serious about these things. Uh, example I thought of, I don't know if it's helpful, but uh, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, do you younger people even know that anymore? I don't know, I'm getting so old. Like, I, th- I think it's worked its way into the cultural vernacular, and we, we do that, right? Indiana Jones, Harrison, it's the first one. And so he's looking for the Ark of the Covenant. That is biblical, that's where God's presence dwelt, and then we kind of lost it. We don't know where it is. So that's the whole premise of the movie, is he's trying to find it, and he's this archaeologist. But anyway, fast forward all... You guys know this movie? Am I alone in this? Like, you got to watch this movie. I mean, we, we're introducing our girls to, like, 80s movies, so sometimes we make a mistake. We're like, whoa, we shouldn't have shown them that one. But anyway, this is a good one. And that last seed, right, the Nazis have the Ark, and they want to co-opt it for their own power. And Harrison Ford, who, he doesn't pretend to be a Christian, but he knows his Bible, he knows his Bible. And you know that scene, they're, they're opening it, and he knows exactly what's about to happen. And it's that crazy face-melting scene. You remember, they're like, ah! And he's the only one that's like ducked down behind the thing. And then, you guys know the scene. He fears the Lord. That's what it means. He takes God seriously. He isn't like, ah, the Bible says, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll do my own thing. You know? <laughs> he fears the Lord. New Testament scholar James Dunn says that uh, this, this story is a holy and awful scene, but he spells it A-W-E-F-U-L. It's a holy and awful scene. The first church experienced firsthand the power of a God that's calling them to radical generosity. C.S. Lewis, I uh, love his writings. He wrote a good bit about this theme uh, we've read our, the Narnia books to our girls, and there's that great scene in The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe where Susan and Mr. Beaver are talking. And she thinks Aslan, who's the personification of Jesus, is a, is a guy. And he's like, oh, no, he's like this large lion. And she's like, ooh. She's like, I might be quite afraid to meet a lion. And then she's like, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, do you remember the scene? He chuckles. He laughs. He's like, he's not safe, but he's good. He's good. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the fear of the Lord. That's that tension. Annie Dillard, she's a Jesus follower. She won the Pulitzer. She's like one of our best writers. I love this quote. Uh, here's what she says. She says, we, we kind of go, this, we're doing this right now. It's very fitting for what we're doing right now. She says, uh, on the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does, any, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. 
Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to the pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Isn't that great writing? It should lash us to the pews. We should add that to the usher you know, description. Um, it's just like, it's the idea, like we just show up sometimes here and like, eh, I don't know, who's speaking today? What are we doing? I, don't, I didn't like that third song in worship, I don't know. Instead of like, we're in the presence of a holy God. If we allow God to have, to have God's way with us and to reshape us and reform us through the power of the spirit, what could happen? What could happen? That's, that's fear of the Lord. That's stepping in and knowing where we're at and knowing who our God is and being rattled by it in a good way. And Luke wants us rattled by this aspect of generosity. So in this instance, taking God seriously means we're called to a radical form of generosity. So I want to talk for a couple minutes about generosity. In all my years, the thing that's been most helpful to me as an apprentice of Jesus, and as I've taught on this topic a lot, I think that I've seen it be helpful in other people who are apprentices of Jesus, is this very simple idea we see in this passage and we see throughout Scripture. And it's this idea. It all belongs to God. If you get this, if you believe this, if you sell out to this, you will never for the rest of your life struggle with generosity. You just won't. This is the key. I'm just telling you. This is the key right there. People who aren't generous don't believe that. So we see this in the passage. It says, no one claimed any possessions were their own. As people who are capitalists, most of us, that should rattle us a little bit, right? No one claimed any possessions were their own. And then furthermore, God's grace was powerfully at work in them. It's God's grace that gives us everything. It's all the Lord's. It all belongs to God. We see this throughout Scripture. I love this passage. Uh, David asking everybody to come and donate stuff for the new temple. It's this big temple building project in 1 Corinthians, Chronicles 29. And he says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. Almost everything? <laughs> everything comes from you. And we have given only what comes from your hand. Paul asked it even more blunt in 1 Corinthians. He says, what do we have that we did not receive? It all belongs to the Lord. Everything, he's like, John, well, I'm, I'm just a little smarter than everybody else. I'm a little better business person. I invested better in the stocks. You know, whatever your, your deal is, that American kind of pull up the bootstraps, which is fine. We should work hard for the glory of God in all things. yes but God allows your brain to fire in the morning. God allows the next breath you're about to breathe be a reality. That's God's grace. Nothing that we have belongs to us. It all belongs to the Lord. Uh, Fred said that we are, we are essentially God's money managers. We're just stewarding what God's, we're, he's just given, and he's given some of us more. And that's a, that's a greater responsibility. Wasn't Spider-Man's uncle that said, with great power comes great responsibility? Something like that. You comic book nerds can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think he said that. Uh, Pastor author Tim Keller says, when we recognize all we have been given, I love this phrase, we become promiscuously generous with our stuff. When we recognize that everything's given to us by God, we become promiscuously generous with our stuff. The word generous uh, comes, it's, this is really cool. I, I know this is nerdy Greek stuff, but really cool. It's made up of two smaller Greek words, the word for over and the word for praise. 
I read the other day someone left a $16,000 tip at a diner. <laughs> That's generous. That's overpraise, right? I don't care how good that wait staff was. It wasn't $16,000. So when people see followers of Jesus being radically generous, like what was going on in the early church, they're like, whoa, who is their God? They don't see scarcity mindset like we see in a lot of followers of Jesus right now. They see abundance mindset. Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He never runs out of stuff to give. So when people see that from the outside, they want to know more about our God. I had a, a close mentor ask me years ago, and this question, I'll be honest, it haunts me to this day. He says, John, how much of God's stuff do you want to keep for yourself? Whew, that's too convicting, so let's just move on. You know, It's just really difficult stuff. We're, uh, we got the opportunity to, to hang out and do church last week with the Open Arms Village, which was remarkable. So like these 120 kids and these people we've grown to love, and you think you want to see worship, man, they move with their bodies, right? You get it going, and you know, it was awesome, and it stretched some of us, including myself. Uh, but I was standing in the back kind of filming things and just kind of just trying to take it in, and one of the last songs they sang before Mike uh, gave the sermon, he did a great job, was a song they just kept on repeating again and again and again. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Here's these people that are, most of them are just really poor, really poor, just with joy and abundance, and it all belongs to God. There's no possessiveness about it. Uh, Alan and Catherine Barnhart, I heard the story years ago. They, uh, they're devoted followers of Jesus. They were gonna go to the mission field, and uh, last minute, Alan's parents said, hey, do you want to take over our company? And they felt it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so they prayed about it and did. But from the get-go, not knowing how successful they'd be, they said, let's do this. And they got together with his brother, and they said, let's always have the same salary. Said that they wanted to break the connection between income and consumption. They didn't want to flirt with that. And boy, they're good business people. It grew, it grew rapidly, and uh, it generates now profits of $400 million a year and they haven't changed their salaries. And they decided to give, uh, spend 50% of the profits building the, the company and give away 50% of it. They've now given away, even though they still run the company, they've given away the entire company to the National Christian Trust to, to, to use profits for the good of the kingdom around the world. Uh, a recent year I read they gave away $21 million. $21 million. Alan says this, everything I have comes from God it belongs to God. My job is to be a steward and figure out what God wants me to do with his stuff. Amen. Finally, uh, generosity is a matter of, of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. I'm being a little cheeky with the language. Um, will, will those of us who decide uh, to keep some of God's stuff for ourselves, will we keel over and die on the moment? <laughs> Probably not. Although that would be interesting church service, wouldn't it? Yeah? Add that to the usher description. Well, you've got to have some body bags on hand this morning and just pulling people out. It probably would hurt uh, church attendance, I would think. I don't think so, right? I think this exceptional period, I mean, I don't want to say no, right? Un unrepentant sin. Uh, but um, by not being generous, by not realizing it all belongs to the Lord, by keeping some of God's stuff for ourselves and not freely releasing it, we don't die at the moment, but we die little by little. We die slow deaths. And I really believe that. I believe that, you know, 
nothing kills and chokes out generosity like entitlement. But it's mine. <laughs> Just crushes generosity and shrinks our heart. We become the embodiment of Ebenezer Scrooge or the Grinch. Right? It's mine. I love, I love Paul's words to, to young Pastor Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We don't need to have scarcity mindset. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold, I love this phrase, of the life that is truly life. Do we want the life that is truly life, New Hope? I hope so. Because right? most of us are kind of limping along right now. We want the life that is truly life. And the key to that is generosity. Jesus later, uh, Paul quotes him, we'll get to this passage in Acts 20. He says, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. So I want to do this. I want to hold out your hands like this. Hold out, come on, everybody. Participation time. We're just coming from Kenya, so I'm, I'm, we're going to do more of this. All right? So take it out, and then I want you to like ball your fist up really tight. And I want you to think of all the things God has given you. Could be a house, could be a couple houses, could be a couple cars, could be... Your, your, your 401k that is not what it was a month ago, and you know, all this thing, whatever your stuff is, all of it, think of it. Everything you possess that God, is, it belongs to the Lord. Do you believe that? Or are you gonna grip it? You're gonna hold on to it for dear life? That chokes out generosity. We will all die slow deaths that way. Jesus says, because it's all mine, and I've given you everything you need, that we just open our hands up. So go ahead and open your hands up. And if you can, do it as a prayer. Probably scared right now, some of you, right? I am. It's yours, Lord. What, what, do, you, what do you want? You want it? Take it. What do, you, what do you want me to do with it, God? It's just yours. This, this is the life that is truly life. This is freedom. This is a joy. This is what we saw at the village last week when they were singing, it all belongs to God. This is the key to life. And you might say, I don't, I don't, I don't have much, John, and, and nearly half of the world's population survives on less than $2 a day. One-fifth of the world's population on less than $1 a day. The global median income is $2,100 a year. Uh, if your household income exceeds $38,000 combined, you are in the top 1% of the wealth in the world. Uh, the average income in America is 68000 If that's you and your household income exceeds $60,000, then you are, you ready for this, in the top 0.2% of the people in the world. Some of you are hurting right now. I don't want to disregard that. Some of you are struggling. We'll help you. Come talk to us. We have, we have money for that. But most of us are extravagantly wealthy. With great power comes great responsibility. It's God's, it's not ours. What are we gonna do with it? Are we gonna release it and lift it up to the Lord and say, what do you want us to do with this? It's yours. I wanna be generous, Lord. That's what a Jesus-following, spirit-filled community does. It's a matter of life and death. One of my favorite books reading to our girls is, uh, is a book by uh, Shel Silverstein called The Giving Tree. I don't know if you're familiar with it. 
Uh, I love Shell stuff. I remember reading, it's kind of like weird stuff at first when you're reading it as a kid, but it really got inside my bones as a kid. Um, one of my other favorite writers is Brennan Manning, and they were friends. I didn't know this till years ago. And uh, Brennan Manning, after he came to faith, he, he, uh, he, he was friends with Shell, and he's like, Shell, like, how would you describe God's love? Shell's like, huh, let me get back to you. And then he went off and he wrote The Giving Tree. Isn't that interesting? If you're, if you're not familiar with The Giving Tree, buy a copy. I think every household should have a copy of The Giving Tree. It's sold more than five million copies worldwide. It's very simple. It's a story of a tree and a boy. The tree loves the boy. When the boy is young, the tree serves the boy by providing shade and apples and you know, branches to swing on and that whole thing. And then as the boy gets older and distracted, goes away, comes back with a wife, has kids, each time coming back to the tree, and each time the tree gives the boy something, wood to build the house or wood to build a boat or whatever, to the point where the tree at the end is whittled down to like a stump and nothing, and the boy comes back, he's now an old man, and he just leans against it. That's all the tree can do. Um, here's the end of the book. And after a long time, the boy came back. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. Well, my teeth are too weak for apples, said the boy. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm, I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk's gone, said the tree. You cannot climb on I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I, I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump, and I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and rest, for I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. An old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down. Sit down and rest. And the boy did, and the tree was happy. The tree's Jesus, by the way. <laughs> That's what she'll say. And, and joy and life comes from giving yourself away for the good of others, releasing it as the Lord's. That is the life that is truly life. And as followers of Jesus and apprentices of Jesus, we're called to be the tree, to give ourselves away whatever we have for the good of others. It's so counterintuitive if you don't follow Jesus. It makes zero sense. But when you begin to follow Jesus, it makes all the sense of the world. And you taste it, and you know it's good. And it brings life that you never thought you could experience. At the end of your days, I promise you this, for myself and for you, I've never met a reformed giver. Never. <laughs> never met anybody. It's like, ah, I gave too much. You will not be on your deathbed if you're able to be so and reflect and be like, I wish that I had not been as generous as I was. <laughs> it's just not going to happen at all. Because you know more than ever on your deathbed looking back that generosity is a matter of life and death. And if we want to taste life, we'll lean in through the power of the Holy Spirit and begin to lead radically generous lives for the glory of God. Amen? All right, so we're going to come to the communion table. I mean, this is the communion table is all about this idea of, of generosity. Think when you come today of, of the story of the giving tree. Of that's Jesus for you. Giving and giving and giving. And in and, and Hebrews it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. I love that. That's Jesus. He invites us into that kind of life. So let the community table be a reminder of what Jesus has done for you. But also as disciples, may it be a catalyst to send you out and live the same way.
So uh, we're kind of, last couple of weeks, I don't know how this has been going the last couple of weeks, I'll be gone, obviously, but we've kind of relaunched into what we, we did previously prior to COVID and uh, done community by, by, communion by coming up, doing the Lord's table together. I deeply believe that's the way it's to be experienced. So we have uh, two tables to my left and right, one up in the balcony, um, and then we have people serving. <clears throat> so that person will welcome you up, so they'll get like eight or 10 of you up there, gather you around, bring around uh, the bread, you take a piece, dip it in the cup, take it, and then they may or not pray for you, depending on time, and then they'll send you out on your way. Uh, you can come up, and there's also little cups if you're like freaked out by dipping your bread in a common cup. I get it. I understand. Just take a little cup, no judgment. And if you're freaked out by even coming up, that's okay too. Uh, you can raise your hand, and the ushers will come. Let me pray for you, and we'll go into our, uh, our time of communion. Jesus, thank you uh, that you are the God that gives and gives and gives and gives. No one outgives you, God no one. And everything we have has been given to us. It all belongs to you. You're such a gracious, generous God to us. And we just bask in that reality right this moment. As we come to the communion table, we remember the most generous act ever. You to give your very life for us to make us right with you and one another in the world. Uh, and, and one day making all things right. So we live into that reality. We pray the table today could be a catalyst as well to send us out and to be those types of generous people for the glory of God and the sake of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said.